Hi, I'm Ken Olan. You may remember me as Jason Vigo from Star Trek The Next Generation, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. On this week's show, we're talking to Ken Olant, who is an actor who I've personally seen in so many things, and chances are, that means you have too. Ken went from dreams of being an ice hockey player to becoming a model and eventually finding his way towards acting. And after a very successful career in acting, he then turned his eyes towards producing films. So Ken is a guy who's been all over this world in terms of the entertainment business, and he has a lot to say about all sorts of different things. Ken's direct connection to the Star Trek world comes from a character he played on the seventh season of Star Trek The Next Generation. And that character was Jason Vigo from the episode Bloodlines. If you haven't seen that one in a while, that character is the maybe, maybe not son of Captain Picard. And yeah, it goes through quite a journey. It's a really interesting episode, and Ken gets to spend a lot of time with Patrick Stewart in that one. So as you can imagine, he's got a lot of really fascinating stories to tell about his time on that set. But beyond Star Trek, you may remember him from his roles in Leprechaun, Riptide, Matt Houston, Days of Our Lives, Summer School, Highway to Heaven, Road as She Wrote, Jag, and an obscure little show called Super Force that he started, which is this interesting syndicated TV show that, uh, you know, he's going to explain it a lot better than I can, but you're going to want to hear these stories from that show. Ken is one of those guests who I could have easily just sat there listening to for hours upon hours because he had so many interesting things to say, so many cool stories, a lot of great insight, and he's just overall a really cool dude. I legitimately feel like my cool factor has just risen 10 levels just by spending a little bit of time with him. And that should tell you how uncool I am if I think that coolness is measured by some sort of bizarre level system. So with any luck, this episode will be a lot cooler than the host of the show currently is. So let's dive into our discussion with Ken Oland, talk about some Star Trek, talk about some Leprechauns, talk about some summer school, and pretty much everything else in between. But before we start talking to this week's guest, I want to remind you guys to make sure you are following Trek Untold on all forms of social media. You can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Trek Untold, and that's one word, Trek Untold, no spaces in between. That's the best way to stay up to date on who our guests are for the week, learn all about them before the show begins, and check out all the random memes I post, because yeah, I do a lot of that too. If you're in a position to financially support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon member. Head over to patreon.com slash trekuntold to see all the different ways you can help financially at different contribution levels. Some of the perks include early access to the episodes, having the chance to ask guests questions, and hopefully some more stuff that I'm going to figure out pretty soon. It is easily the best way to directly connect with me, as well as to meet other fans of this show. If you're looking to buy some Trek Untold merchandise, don't worry, that's going to be coming very soon. If you prefer to check out the video version of this podcast, head over to youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday, where every Sunday I post these episodes in video format, which includes a lot of images and video from the guests that we're talking to. But the most important thing you can do to help support this show is please leave us ratings and reviews if you're checking us out on iTunes, on Spotify, or other audio platforms that allow you to leave reviews and ratings, or by subscribing to our YouTube channel, as well as giving our Trek Untold videos thumbs up, likes, and comments. All these interactions help push our podcast to the very top of these different platforms to make sure more Star Trek fans can find us. It costs you nothing to do other than a few moments of your time, so please, if you haven't done that already, consider doing so. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. 
Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen, we have a guest who has climbed rocks with the Starfleet captain. He has sailed on the love boat. He's pitied the fool while he's also been young and restless. Uh, but most importantly, he has punched a leprechaun repeatedly in the face. Uh, Mr. Ken Oland, how are you today? <laughs> what a great intro. Yeah, he's kind of like summed up the whole career right there and all those little cliches. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have far more to go to than just that, though. There's plenty to talk about here. Uh, and I'm, I'm super excited yeah. to talk to you because you're a face I've seen in a lot of things, too. So, uh, you know, when, when I found it, it was Ken that I was talking to. I got super excited doing all my research, watching all these things again. I hadn't seen in years. I'm like, oh, man, this is this is going to be a lot of fun. So hopefully you feel the same way by the time we're done with this. We'll see how it goes in an hour from now. <laughs> right. No, I love the looking back on the, you know, uh, it's always great when you have memories that come out, you know, Facebook has these you know throwbacks or memories from certain time. And I've stayed in touch with a lot of people that I've I worked with in the past. And it's really great to see them again, you know, just in, in, in so natural circumstances, but it really does bring back great memories from the past. Um, yeah. Very cool. Now, we're going to get to yeah. the deep, deep Star Trek stuff in a little bit. But first things first, Ken, I want to ask you a question I like to ask all my guests. And that's, uh, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up watching it at all? Absolutely did. I, I grew up, I think it was six, uh, six o'clock. And, and um, yeah, it was six o'clock. Uh, and we had only three channels back then. You know, it had a UHF. But, you know, when you watched it, if you missed it, it was gone. You know, there, I don't even think there were reruns back then. But um you know, it was really, I, I grew up watching Star Trek for sure, you know. And what's really cool was later in life, I got to hire, um, you know, Captain William, <laughs> Bill Shatner, you know, as and uh, work for one of the movies that I was producing. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about that. We're going to get to that, too. Um, but, yeah, it's just continuing on the secret origin story of Ken Oland here. Uh, can you tell us a, a little bit about where you grew up, who your parents were and what they did? And what little Ken wanted to be when he grew up? Was he always going to be an actor or did he have aspirations for something else? Yeah, no, little Ken wanted to be a professional ice hockey player. And uh, there was, you know, I did some modeling in high school. And I do recall as far back as, the, you know, the fourth grade when somebody asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, actor. And I had no idea where that came from. I really don't. I mean, to this day, I remember exactly when it happened and where it was. But um, it wasn't really a plan for me. I, I really loved ice hockey and wanted to keep playing. And it wasn't until later that um, acting would, would come around. I think I was pretty much infatuated with the success and the wholesomeness of Donnie and Marie Osmond. I thought that whole thing was like the coolest, you know, all that whole Tiger Beat era, you know, the Cal Sills. This is my era. We have young families, young guys and, and girls that are all uh, they're singing and they're good and they're mod. They have the, the long hair with the swoop. So we all had to wear certain styles. And these guys were, that's who we looked to. You know, we'd drive into town to, to, to get that team magazine. You know, that was really hard to find. You, and, you know, one drugstore that was the big one that had it. And you'd go there, and your mother would go shopping and you just sit there and pour through the magazines. It was always those tiger beat kind of stuff for kids. Well, just remember, if you're trying to be Donny Osmond, uh, you don't get to kiss Marie Osmond in the way you probably want to. So, um, <laughs> yeah, problem, right. problem for future. That'd be the you. untold story, wouldn't it? Yes. <laughs> now, where, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Canada, I read? I, I grew up in Canada, Vancouver. Well, I grew up all over. We started in Berkeley, California, and then we moved to Iowa for one year, and then moved back, and then to uh, t Texas for a year, uh, Houston, and then back. And then my father was... Offered a job with uh, overseas in Libya, and so we, but we had moved to Vancouver for a year to two years prior, and then he got into that and said, "Forget it." He quit his job because it was, you know, Gaddafi was in power. It was really horrible. 
And at that point, my brother and I were scheduled to, to go to school in, in Switzerland at a boarding school. Um, and that whole thing just like happened in two weeks. Nope, you're going to stay in Canada and that's it. And that's where we stay, Vancouver. And, and to put that yeah. into context, the reason we're mentioning Gaddafi's name here is because uh, your dad was in the oil business, right? He, he was with Standard Oil. Yeah, he, he, yeah he's in oil business. Well, he <laughs> was more like, like in There Will Be Blood. No, not even, not even, not even like, and not even like a monopoly set. It was really more like um, he was a, chem, a petrochemical engineer, and and uh, was really more of a scientist engineer. So he was called in to help troubleshoot with the fineries. Nothing to do with anything other than the actual production of oil, right? And so, unfortunately, that job was really was in you know jeopardy around guys like Gaddafi. So he went back to work with a company in Calgary, I think where I lived, I lived there for, for a you know, summer school period of time. And then, but mostly Vancouver was the beautiful city, great place to grow up skiing right there, hockey everywhere. You know, so it was great. Now, were you the kind of kid who was doing like school plays once you kind of figured out you wanted to go in that direction or what were you kind of like a back then as a young student? No, the, the, we, it was weird. We were too cool to be doing that stuff. Cause the way our school was set up is people who were in the plays I don't know. You know, it was kind of a, I think it's the only prejudice you'll find in high school in Canada at that time was that kind of thing. Um, not, but my friend Alan Lowheed and I did try off for a play for fun. It was Finian's Rainbow. We played uh, two young, you know, it's, it's, I can't say it. We, we, we covered our faces. So we were, we were like these little poor kids. And uh, it was, it was one of the, I, yeah, edit that part out because it sounds so not cool today, but it's true. We did. We had, you know, we, we put all this tan on our faces and we would just, we would have fun mimicking it. Oh, oh, then we laughed with each other. We were not actors in any way or try it. We were just having a lot of fun, you know, part of the, and me on the play. That was it. But I got into modeling a little bit. You know, somebody said something to me, and I, I think I started doing some modeling th- through a friend. Local modeling, you know, commercials here and there in Vancouver. Nothing big or, or that really at the time. And then it wasn't until, you know, I left to come down to uh, L.A. to go to school at the Art Center in Pasadena. I was headed for advertising because I wasn't going to make it in hockey. So I got into that school, and that's when things really changed. Yeah, interesting. I'm curious to hear because I read on your IMDb uh, that you know you went to an art school basically, and I went to an art school also, so I feel your pain. Oh. Um, but you know, like, I'm curious, you know, what you took from your art school experience into your acting experience. I mean, was there kind of a transition into that, or did any of that kind of influence what you did later on once you got into acting? You know, you know, it really that that art school. You know, when you're already in an art school and you're an artist and you're getting accepted into a high level school or a quality school that doesn't really have any change or impact on you as an individual. You're already at that place. The effect that, or the impact that it did provide was it, after the sixth term, they were, they let me know very politely, look, your work's good, but you're never here. You know, what do you, maybe you should go do something else for a while. And, 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 and what had happened is I'd gotten involved with a lot of these, you know, the new age self-help groups, you know, very uh, counter, uh, what do you call it? Counter group kind of stuff. And I, that woken uh, that woke me up to to you know um, emotions and, and honesty and interactions with people. I found that really alive and captivating and, and um, just genuine. You know, it's, it's just amazing when somebody you're with room of three hundred people and a lot of realities getting kicked around and stuffs put out there and you share yourself. It's you get you fall in love with a huge group of people and you find in yourself. A confidence to be willing to, to present in front of lots of people and open up. And um, that really made an impact for me. And from that, 
I went to meet a girl from that event and she was at a restaurant and it was a, called Hamptons on Highland, which is like a hamburger joint. And I went there to meet her and she was with a bunch of people who stood up to meet me, made me look important. And that, as I'm shaking their hands, it caught the attention of an agent at the time was Harry Gold and his daughters, Tracy Brandy and uh, Missy Gold were, he had an agency and he was representing his kids, basically. He was there with his wife, Bonnie, and they were um, having a, an argument. And then she noticed me from the waitress and so forth. And she goes, who's he? He's Who is he? He's an actor. And, and uh, I guess I look like an actor. So I got their card through the, the waitress, who's also a friend. And next thing you know, I'm, you know, meeting with them and I go out for auditions. And that's an interesting journey, too, because I mean, you talk about, you know, starting out and modeling and then going yeah. to these encounters and wanting to be more in touch with your feelings and be more open and outward with them. But, you know, modeling is so much more about the outside as opposed to acting, which is a lot more about the inside. So, uh, I mean, once you started to actually go into that, I mean, did you find that to be challenging at all? The modeling really was just stand there and smile. It yeah. wasn't you didn't have to do much anything, you know, and, and when we're all young at that age, for the most part, we don't have to worry too much about you know, things we would later in life, you know, because our bodies aren't the same shape as we were back then. It was really more, I wouldn't say the modeling had anything to do with it other than I did get one experience where I walked out on a stage at a high school, we were modeling for a high school. And I got that feeling of that crowd adoration. When I walked out, the girls and everything, you know, they all went, awesome. and that was fun. And definitely an ego stroke and all that great stuff and acceptance when you're young. And you're, you know, like teens and so forth, because there's so much pressure in school and many other ways of that era and that age. And kids go through such, such difficult times. This was one of those sweet spot moments where you just had this, man, I'm a star. I feel like these, I feel like these idols that I've, these people that I've been looking at and wanted to be got a chance to have a taste of that. That was back in Vancouver. Coming down to LA, um, it, it, the real nitty gritty of going out on interviews. And I was ready for that because from the encounter group stuff and, and really, you know, working on and being around that, that amount of openness and, and honesty, that's what acting is. It's, it's the, you know, um, the reaction of, of, it's of people to each other in a situation and recreating of that genuinely um, the artists of human relation and, and, this prepared me in such a great way to be comfortable almost to the point where I was like too present at times because it was not intense, but I, I just really was drinking in the idea of being with somebody and so intimately just being with them and, and doing these scenes. And that really was different than, you know, situations where actors find themselves. Cause when I was producing, I found that actors got very nervous in their heads and, and I went, no, 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 be out here with me. And don't worry about anything. Just just tell me what your character needs me to know and come from that. And that was fun. Really fun. So it's, a, it's a much more cerebral uh, kind of a approach to things. Um, so, you know, we're talking about art school, we're talking about modeling here, but did you have any like formal acting training or, or was it just that you did these encounters and that's kind of what gave you the tools to perform? Well, I just said like, no, I didn't have any I did have acting later, but in classes I would go to, but it was, <laughs> Harry said, Ken, you know, you've got six callbacks to one life to live. And I, and I'm getting an episode of Matt Houston and this, you know, these little things are starting to come along. He was, you got to get into acting class you gotta learn technique and all these things. So I went to meet <laughs> Gordon Hunt, who was uh, Helen Hunt's dad. And he had an acting class there. He also was a voice, uh, a character um, 
a director for cart for animation and stuff for voice acting and um and it was right across the parking lot of this uh dance studio called joe tremaine's you know dancing that's where i met my wife i saw her and that i'd say that was the best part of that whole you know acting experience of uh, classes i met to me later i would get classes i remember george clooney has been a friend for years and and we were working together at one point at the same level we weren't in, working to get we worked together in one show but it was my series and and he goes series regular <laughs> who's this dude anyways we became real good friends and he got me introduced to he introduced me to bill howie he was an acting coach uh milton Kinsellis, that group um so i started doing that stuff but i didn't really come through matt because i had i was getting work and i'm not gonna stop acting work for for an acting class you know, when they say you have an agreement to be here, I go, no, I got, I, I have a job at four in the morning in San Pedro. <laughs> I'm not staying up till midnight or 11 in, in Hollywood to do an acting class. It's not going to happen. You know, so that was that's really where it, it kind of the training really didn't go as it should have. You know, I did some of it more on the job. Really more on the, you know what? You learn so much more. Oh, Howard Fine. Big plug for Howard because Howard Howard did shape me as an actor from that point forward because I would do private classes with him and I, he really I thought was instrumental in over time of really you know getting me focused on the on on, on a proper technique and proper training and how I could develop that way. So that was I'd say Howard Fine for sure. Now, do you remember what your very first like professional acting gig was? Yep. Yeah, the very first, well, it's, um, I think the very first was a, one line, was a dead days of our lives, I think, and I had five lines and under kind of thing. You know, they, they, they five lines gets you a sad card. Yeah, sag after one of those things. But ba- I think that was it. And I just remember uh, that was the, the moment. I didn't have much to do, but it was just one of those situations where I felt really at home. It was really fun, very playful, very exciting, like being in the circus or being, you know, in that kind of environment. It was really, I, I had a good time. Didn't really come into any acting. It was just a, a couple lines, you know, and, and you're not really supposed to do a whole lot when you're just one of those characters. You say your line and, you know, forward the story. Um, it, later when I think it was uh, Matt Houston, an episode of Matt Houston where I played a streetwalker, you know, a young guy who's a runaway who's now selling his body and stuff for, for the, um, for money. And I am a witness to, or a, you know, witness to us to something, a clue about a murder of a young girl. And I think what got me the role is I didn't play it affected in any way. I just played it straight naturally, like the person was. And they, and I didn't see any need to do anything, you know, it was, it was really more that. And, and I think that was a, that was a cool rec- um, acknowledgement, I guess, of having, being on the right track, you know, if you, uh, this, this trust your instincts more and more and more and more. And the more you do, the better it gets, the easier it gets, the, the more everyone will trust you. The more you second guess it, the more you worry about it, the more you, you know, back up the confidence and try to do over, it becomes more, that becomes a message being sent. And then that's tough. Then you're like, now you're working uphill. So that, yeah, that was that, that Matt Houston episode. <laughs> so I want to jump into a movie. I really just like having to get to rewatch again for this interview. And that's Summer School. 
And uh, yeah. that's directed by Kyle Reiner. It starred Mark Harmon. Uh, and plus, you know, that, that movie has a lot of other big up and commerce too at the time. You know, you had Dean Cameron, who was some real hot stuff at that point. Uh, Courtney Thorne Smith, Kelly Joe Minter, and, uh, you know, of course, a little known actress. Uh, you might have heard of her, Kirstie Alley. Um, but you, you played Larry, who is the student who pretty much spends his school days sleeping all the time because at night he's out stripping. And uh, by the way, I told my girlfriend that you were in the movie and she was like, was he the stripper? Like she knew right away. <laughs> so you, you clearly have to mark on her uh, for better or for worse for me. But um, yeah, I feel like that was like a, a big break for you, right? Like, was that a big moment for you? Yeah, it, um, it, it is because, you know, that's a level of a movie that you always you want to get to um, as quickly as you can. And, and, and fortunately enough, I didn't have a really big role, but I was in every scene that the kids were in for the most part. You know, and Carl treated us all like we were all a family, you know, a group. He didn't he he dealt with the kids that needed to when they were, you know, focusing on their scenes. Like Dean had lots of scenes and Kelly had hers and, you know, um, and and uh, so, you know, Pat, you know, all these all the, we're all they were just they were like family. We were all like kids from school and like we're buddies. And, and Carl really was so sweet and, and took care of us that way. And he was so much fun to be on. Um, my thing was, you know, was, was, uh, was pretty simple because all I had to do was just, you know, fake like I'm sleeping or actually sleeping sometimes. And then, uh, and then the strip scene was the big one that was, you know, but I had a lot of working out. I had to get my body in as close as I could to look or resemble and do, you know, any kind of respect to a real professional stripper guy, <laughs> you know, we'd apply a little makeup here and there to help me out. <laughs> Carl Ryan or Mark Harmon kept telling me I was shaving my butt. <laughs> he was such a fun guy. Mark is the whole that whole experience. Some of my best memories, you know, eating crispy uh, what was those uh, crackers, saltine crackers, and under a minute and trying to whistle, you know, with Kirsty uh, at, a, at a bench with a couple of people from the crew. And it was a beautiful afternoon on the beach there. One bit of trivia, you know, those cantaloupes they throw in the air that explode. If you look carefully at the camera, you'll see one chunk come right off the, to the right or whatever it was. That hit me straight in the eye, straight in the eye. I was like, whack, knocked me almost out. It was my, my, my memory of that particular scene. So you got some PTSD from doing summer school, basically. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And whatever you do in that stripper scene, clearly it left a mark on a lot of people. Because like I said, my girlfriend knew right away. Um, yeah, whatever. I'm not going to touch any more than that. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more actually about working with Carl Reiner because he's someone whose work, you know, I, I think everybody out there admires a lot. I mean, that's, that's an understatement. He's such a legendary director. Uh, how would you describe the way that he works? How would you describe the way that he worked with especially a group of younger kids? Yeah, so Carl and and actually so is, um, so is, is was, uh, um, Jerry Lewis, I get to work with him as well. They, I got plenty of questions uh, about Jerry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, basically, they 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 tell you don't let anybody mess with the eight year old in you. You know, don't let a director screw with the eight year old, and that's really important because there therein lies a lot of the, the the creativity and the fun and the carefree. Carl Carl kept us all. Um, light and fun he's he's a master he was a master of comedy and 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 at the improv and rolling with it you know keeping it flowing keeping the same with jerry jerry they're old school they get it rolling you don't stop for anything don't don't stop the flow go stay with it 
And um, that was one of the best things was Carl was able to allow and find in everybody this, this confidence and then they, then they could deliver. And we just felt totally safe around him. He created such a, like for, on Halloween, our show ran over Halloween. He arranged for us to have these honey wagons, you know, sh- food wagons brought in and they had a mariachi band and then all the departments dressed up in various different costumes. Mark dressed like Carl, actually, <laughs> you know, the headphones, the white shirt and, and the hair wig. but. Um, uh, all of it was it was really fun that doesn't happen on a normal feature film set you know it just they, a lot of people take themselves too seriously but because carl was like hollywood royalty you, anything he wanted was was would we get and everything was appropriate you know and i'm glad you mentioned uh, jerry lewis already because i definitely have questions about him let's just go right on into that now but um i guess we should kind of preface how you got into working with Jerry Lewis, because this is on a show you did called Super Force. And uh, I don't know, I don't know if my TV stations locally didn't get it or not. I didn't know about it, but again, I told other people and they're like, oh my God, you're talking about Super Force? <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, apparently it, has, it still has a huge following. I, I'm like looking at that up on YouTube now and like watching it. I'm like, this actually is pretty cool. Um, but I guess before we get into Jerry Lewis, because uh, I do have a bunch of questions about Super Force, would you mind kind of giving us the elevator synopsis of what that show was? So the elevator synopsis, that's a good point. The, the show is about a fella who's a, a, an astronaut with really good hair, and he goes away up, you know, to space and comes back only to find out the world's gone to hell in the year 2020, right? And surprise, as he comes surprise, back, 2020. 2020, lots of changes here and there. And so he ends up uh, uh, coming into this, this lab where the person that he knew, E.B. Hungerford, is now a computer, living his essence, is living in the computer. And the sidekick played by Larry B. Scott was this, you know, FX spinner who's this, you know, scientist who runs everything. We become the crime-fighting duo because my spacesuit is then converted to be a, uh, you know, like an urban assault, you know, military police slash, um, you know, weapon. And then the motorcycle is a, is a product as well. That's provided to as BMW. And um, Bob Short created that. So it's kind of, you know, we got, I think our rate, our, what our review on People Magazine was pretty cool trash. <laughs> and, and I think they're referring to the idea that because this is the trashy part of television in the sense that from network television, everything was the top notch, you know, ABC, CBS, NBC, those, those were all the, the big budget, the big national viewings. This syndicated world, was kind of the junky world of, of wannabes and, and attempts at this and that, right? And they were they're funding themselves by running around the country selling the, the TV you know, adver- advertising time. That's what NAPTI was all about there. So that's really the the the, the you know the big, uh, genesis, if you will, of this of the star you know Super Force and all those kind of things. Yeah. So then Jerry Lewis, how how did Jerry Lewis come up, right? So the the um, also, but it's really hard to have this show have anything Jeopardy because you're in Florida. Everything's green and lush and beautiful. Even futuristic, it's really tough. So we had to shoot everything at night in a Universal Studios lot and has a lot of lot of negotiations to find the dirtiest part of Universal to get some kind of edge going on. Um, so the, the producers were were master negotiators at pulling stuff off, and, and this guy Jim McNamara wrangled up a deal with Jerry Lewis to come do a half hour episode and. It was like one of those miraculous moments as a young kid, let alone a person as an actor. Here you are standing next to a legend, right? And he's directing you. And and this wasn't a comedy, but he knew how to find the comedy in it. Uh, But it was really, really a thrill for me because, you know, just to kind of step back and see the wider scope, I've been so lucky, man. 
I mean, I, Michael Landon, right? Um, Carl Reiner, Jerry Lewis, so many of these guys down the, the from, you know, Ernst Borgnine, just old icons and mainstays in the, in the business. So very lucky to have had that time. Yeah, that's, that's really cool to be able to work with Jerry Lewis. And, uh, you know, quick trivia for you too, Ken, do you know what uh, piece of filming equipment that Jerry Lewis is attributed to creating? I would say the whip cam or something like that. Is it, what is it? Uh, video assist. It was getting playback actually, oh. actually while you're there. Uh, it's, all, it's all thanks to Jerry Lewis, or at least supposedly uh, attributed to him. So yeah, he he wanted to basically have you know you know how Jerry Lewis is. He wanted more control uh, on the set to make sure he could see what was going on and have that ability. So uh, video assist is thanks to him. Yeah, very nice to know that. I didn't know that. That's very yeah. cool. So another <laughs> thing is, you, know, you mentioned that you guys are on Universal Studios set, and uh, that kind of made a lot of sense for this other guy I'm going to ask you about now because around that same time you were doing Super Force. World Championship Wrestling was filming their, uh, I think their, their syndicated wrestling show also. And you got through an episode with Sting. And I am a big <laughs> pro wrestling mark, so I got to ask, you know, I, I saw the fight scene of you with Sting as well. Uh, tell me about working with the Stinger. Oh, he was a cool guy. Uh, you know, we, this, these guys that they brought in were larger than life. But it, whenever you're on the set, they're just really sweet and they're really fun. I later came across Sting in Saugus out here where our kids were competing at a track meet. And it was one of those moments where you go, hey, man. I go, yeah, where's your blonde hair now? <laughs> it was gone. Um, so, yeah, Sting was in an episode. Uh, the cool thing about that show is it gave everybody a chance to be kind of a, uh, an arch enemy or a super in, in a fictitious, you know, a world where they have a sort of superpower or, you know, playing into what they do. We had, for example, Lou Ferrigno. He came on and did an episode and his character is called Eugene, which is U gene, as if it's a U gene because he's genetically created. Um, and I, I got to know Lou, and man, I later saw him at a chiller of convention, which I only one I've ever done. And he was there, and it was such a thrill to see him again. He's such a nice, you know, just terrific people, and he's a great, great guy. I don't know if he, I imagine he's still around because he's, you know, he's pretty rock solid. Um, but that, that show brought in a lot of people from all different walks. We had Tracy Lords and Ginger Lynn, you know, but we also had a, a, a fella who was, uh, G Gordon Liddy yep. and G Gordon Liddy for a lot of the viewers may or may not know. He was a huge part of this country's, you know, um, political scene slash, you know, military FBI. I mean, his stories were pretty, pretty you know, amazing. He, he would take his thumbtacks down his arm reversed out because he was getting grabbed in haze in high schools because he wasn't a big buffy scrawny and that he that was his way of, of fighting back and people would beat him up and rough and they, they hurt their hands on his thumbtacks um one time he had a little room in in, in uh, on the trailer only because of he's only in there for an hour for the scene and then he was gone and they just didn't plan enough well and they got him in a very small room and he and they said we're sorry mr liddy goes oh don't worry i've been in much smaller rooms <laughs> you can only imagine you yeah you have to work with him again in uh, 18 wheels of justice right uh gee yeah 18 wheels of justice i was called in on that show because i'd done a few renegades with uh lorenzo lamas and the producers were um I have a tendency to kind of be, you know, a jokester on set. I like to have fun, like a lot of Jim Carrey stuff, you know, goof around, make fun of, you know, break the levity. Have, you know. And um, and they needed this, apparently, that ne they wanted that element on that set because there was a little bit too much tension for some reason, you know. And I so I thought that was kind of cool. Great. Invite me down to make people laugh. I'll do it. And it was fun, you know. 
18 Wheels of Justice is a weird kind of show, but the more you think about it, is the trucks are pretty groovy. You get inside one of those things and it's a cool, it's a cool environment. Yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking yeah. I need to have like a separate podcast just to talk all about 18 Wheels of Justice and another one to do Renegade. That's that's going to be a whole other series of shows for me down the line. But um, Good, I hope so, man. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, uh, you have a lot of indirect and direct Star Trek connections to start your career. You already mentioned Shatner. We'll get to him again a little bit later. But uh, there's one really fun one that I want to talk to you about because it's actually a series. Uh, you're going to be surprised to hear this. We chat about a lot on Trek Untold, and that is Murder, She Wrote. Uh, anytime I get somebody who does Star Trek, chances are they did Murder, She Wrote. So I got to ask you about that. And your episode, too, had uh, you got Dean Butler, Chad Everett, Brenda Vaccaro, who you got to smooch. Uh, but the Trek connection here is Jeannie Francis. And Jeannie right. is, for folks who don't know, uh, the wife of Jonathan Frakes. And she's also, you know, looking at her career, too. She's a legend. I mean, she is Laura from Laura and Luke. Amazing, isn't it? How we are all so connected. I don't, was Jeannie on my episode? She was, yeah. She, uh, you, I, you hit on her for most of it. <laughs> for most of your scenes with her, you basically hit on her. Okay, that's her. right. That's right. Uh, wow. You had man. a few scenes with Angela also. So yeah, I'd just love to hear some stories about, about Jeannie. Yeah, Brenda Vaccaro. Yeah, I remember Brenda Vaccaro very well. And Angela, um, Angela was, man, she just commanded so much respect on that show. And I think Vince McAvee was the director. And he also had me on, um, I think, um, Simon and Simons and things like that. But that show was, I think, the fourth episode of television or third. Well, I hadn't gotten very many shows that in that time. I don't even remember now. I, I swear it sounds pompous, but I just looking back over how many years, 30 something years, I can barely remember a lot of who came for i've looked at the imdb but um uh, that that had a lot of, of not only you know the cool people that would later like to see on track and things like that but but these were all quality actors back in the day they, they were not just something that kind of finds its way like a not that baywatch isn't no quality but you know what i'm saying they weren't hired kind of, for that kind of look well they were hired for acting because they were stage actors a lot of them they were trained in stage actors and and done dramas and things like that they weren't hired for a look, for a sexy look. They were hired for their scales and talent. That's different. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, did you get to spend any time uh, hanging out with Angela or, or getting to do much with her? I, if you remember it all. You... No, I can tell you exactly. No, I remember we shot this house across in Pasadena. And, and I just remember what we did talk about. She had one conversation we had was right, we could see across the ravine was the house where Batman, they shot the TV series. Batman would come out of the tunnel. Oh, wow. And that was the, that was the point where that Batman, that bat car would roll out. <laughs> and uh you know she knew a lot of stuff she again i just i was a little you know you be respectful around someone like angela he does not you talk when you know you're when you're when you're talking you talk when you're spoken to you don't just do you know just be very very you know uh polite on set appropriate uh when you're around people like angela and others of that ilk that's that level of uh bodied work you know yeah it's important for if you want to stick around <laughs> I feel like I spend more time in these episodes talking about Marisha Road than I do Star Trek. Uh, it's just a thing I'm into. I don't know why, but yeah, it's just my thing. One day I'm going to get her on the show somehow. Oh, yeah. She, well, you know, you should. She she could tell you a million. Because everybody has gone through that show. Yeah, so many much. people. Because she was on for so long, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't think anybody got anything that they would ever say. I would think they always say a Murder, She Road was one of those shows that was a mark in their career as, you know, up there. That's one you did. You know, I look now. I still get residuals from it, which is pretty nice. impressive. Well, you, yeah. you're gonna get some from me. I just rewatched that episode, so you're welcome. <laughs> Very good. 
<laughs> I got one last thing here before we do jump into the Trek stuff, uh, and that is Leprechaun. And uh, that was like the first thing I thought about when I when I saw your name. I was like, oh man, we're gonna get to talk about Leprechaun because yeah. uh, I've never had a chance to discuss this film. And uh, again, I got to rewatch it just this weekend to refresh my memory on it. And this is so cool because it's like I I always forget that Jennifer Aniston is in this film because you always just think of her now as like you know Friends. Uh, and this is basically a year away from her doing Friends now, so it's like she's just on the cusp of things, uh, really picking up. And uh, it's just so crazy to watch this thing. So. Uh, I mean, th- th- was this film as fun to make as it was to watch? Because it's still pretty damn fun to watch. Oh, it was. We had so much fun. And I think the fact that we really, none of us had, I think the biggest, you know, star of the of this show was Mark Holton. He'd done Pee-wee's Big Adventure, right? True. I mean, I was in an ensemble cast of Summer School and I didn't, so I think I'd done April Fool's Day. Jen was on a couple of shows. I don't. I don't even know if she'd gotten on a series or anything like that. Maybe she'd done a few things. Her dad was an actor, but Mark really from Pee Wee's from you know Pee Herman's Big Adventure was more the the you know the guy with the chops and all that stuff. And um, but Jen, the show was so fun because we shot it up on this set where they shot Little House in the Prairie, and it was up in Simi Valley, and it was so cold, so cold. We spent so much time in the trailers hanging out together. And uh, with Warwick and his wife and uh, um, hearing all of his stories back in England and this and that, it just, it was really, really, really fun to do that show. One thing that we noticed that you know, Mark Jones, the director, he's still doing so many great things these days. Um, he, he, he wrote the show to be, a, to be as if Disney were to make a horror film. He didn't want it to be anything like a scary movie or a horror, horror film. It was more of a Disney's dark movie if you would. And that's because you could tell from the walls were painted black and then primary colors are painted over them. And then there are no doors are straight. They're all cattywamp a little bit. So everything is just a little off. And then remember when I, when we were looking at the set and walking around and we were checking our wardrobe out, the guys, the wardrobe, I picked mine out and they all said, you're going to be really glad you picked that jacket, Ken. <laughs> Why is that? Because it's going to be like 30 at night. And I looked at Jen and she's wearing this black we get tired outfits on the go. Oh my gosh, you're gonna freeze. <laughs> it was, um, but it was really fun on set. Uh, we shot the whole thing up there. They they ended up just to re- they didn't print, they didn't give it the uh, the quality, but they printed it too dark. I think they're trying to go for the horror film from what they'd sold it as, and it really just never was a horror film. So they just printed it darker, and just kind of made it hard to see. And you know, it's hard to make a horror film about a guy who's running around polishing shoes and he's easily distracted from killing you from polishing shoes and you know it's that's all it's preposterous it's fun right and it totally is like like you said i love the description you said it's like disney does a horror movie because they basically break like every horror movie rule like the first scene of the film you see the leprechaun they're not really hiding that too much and then no. later on when you fi- when you finally actually have your first face-to-face confrontation i mean it's well first off it's a pretty funny scene uh, but then second of all, it is a leprechaun. I mean, so then basically you, Jennifer Aniston, the little kid, they all start beating the shit out of Warwick Davis, which is just, I love that scene too. Uh, and by the way, there, there was a stunt double, I assume, right? That wasn't Warwick Davis getting beat on. <laughs> well, the stunt double is Deep Roy. And oh, Deep, Deep Roy, Roy do you know Deep Roy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Deep's been in a ton of stuff. And he was the uh, Oompa Loompa guy in, in Johnny Depp's um, Willy Wonka. I and actually... Uh, unfortunately broke deep's hand he he got too close to me as i was i was tethered to a bear claw a bear trap in my leg it was you know i couldn't move that because i'd fall out of it and i'm swinging my you know um flashlight and he got 
a little too close with his hand. He was, you're supposed to stage this stuff and, and you know, a combination of both of us. I, I swung a little too hard for performance and he got a little too close and just clipped his hand. And I think I might've broken a bone in his hand and it was, I felt so bad for that, but deep was, uh, just, he's a stunt guy, right? So it's, he's, he knows the drill. <laughs> it's not fun. <laughs> Yeah, and we showed that he was also in uh, the Abram Star Trek movies too. So he's got yep. it's another Star Trek connection for you. Solid. Um, yeah. So you know they say that you always learn something on every set that you're on. So I'm curious, like, what was the lesson that you learned from being on Leprechaun? Anything specific about about like what in life or in acting or in well either. I tell I you guess. what I did learn. I tell you what I did learn. I'll tell you this, and and, and because later I would be a producer. And that was the first independent movie I'd ever done. I'd ever, prior to that, it was two Paramount pictures, Summer School and, and, and April Fool's Day. And, um, and then before that was, was, net, was network television. So there's times in your career where you kind of dip below the equator and you do some things that are like, eh, should I do this show? You know, it's not really, does it help the career? Like, like Love American style, you know the remake of the remake you know and you think maybe i shouldn't do this but you know whatever so in this situation here what i learned was uh i went to school on producing an independent movie and and uh licensing then later we would co-found a company called ufo um where we were we made our movies based on licensing pre-license pre-contract licensing and then making them we're going to make them you know making the movie from that money that's what primark was before and they were also they were first a video store then they were, then they were that and then they also then they did you know theatrical presentations, um, but still they were always more of an independent than you, not that big of a studio per se, but I learned a lot of production and and distribution licensing and funding from that perspective. You get a lot of information on set about technical camera block you know camera equipment camera lights leakos all these names of whatever you know products. Or, tools there are on making a show but when it comes to the actual uh, viability of producing something and what the what's going to co- what's costs and how you're going to recoup it that's i've learned that from leprechaun yeah you really kind of uh, look at that period of time through a microscope and you think about like you know companies like trimark like uh, full moon pictures who are kind of producing a lot of these uh, oftentimes mm. direct to vhs movies and they're really successful at it and it's like an era we're not really seeing today in the same way. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely some lessons to be learned there, I think. Still, still, just you can glean from those companies what they did. I think uh, Full Moon had a um, 200 movies by the year 2000. That was their, their, you know, their slogan on their website or on their posters or whatnot. And remember, this is back in, we're talking from 80, I think 86 was, was Leprechaun, right? Or 84, 85? In, the, in that span. Leprechaun would have yeah. been actually uh, 93. What am I thinking of? So 93, 93, 94, right? Because I think Mike Myers said, yeah, Mike Myers on on Saturday Night Live, they they gave Leprechaun the best movie of the year (laughs) because it was the only movie that had just come out that year. And that was a joke because they, Mike and Jen were friends. I think, I think she, he or somebody knew Jennifer to Mike. Um, But in that era that, you know, everything was still not really digital yet. You know, it really hadn't moved fully into digital until Y2K. You know, they, people were still faxing everything back and forth. And, and they were dial up on, on modems and, and what. You know, so nothing really moved into that digital age back then. 
So anytime you could get information, you couldn't download it like you can today. I can change my front end steering on a four-wheel drive and download it in the morning and get it done by that afternoon. You just didn't have these kind of access to information unless you were actually there. Now, these days, I'm kind of just waiting for like the gritty, dark reboot of Leprechaun. But, uh, you know, kind of on that note, uh, did you ever get called back or did they ever try to recruit you for any of the many Leprechaun sequels? Oh, you know, there's that would be counterproductive. We already know how to kill that rascal. You know, (laughs) you don't bring the guy back. You don't bring us back. You bring the Leprechaun back, which you keep us. You got to have a new batch of fresh faces to destroy. That's the that's the, you know, franchise model, right? Destroy people, destroy property. Take people's clothes off, defy authority. You know, and you keep doing that reg- regularly on a franchise. Slap a name on it. One, two, three, four. There you go. <laughs> I'm gonna put that slogan on a T-shirt. That's brilliant. <laughs> it's not my. I didn't. I didn't make it up. I mean, it's it's really been around for a while. It's, you know, I think it's in one of these movies. I think I saw back in the day. But it does. It's almost like, for example, on, on April Fool's Day, I cornered Frank Mancuso Sr., who came to see a shoot in Vancouver Island, and his son was making the, was producing the movie. And he, at the time, was head of Paramount. And I just asked him, I, I just remember these things come out of the blue, and I don't know what spawns it, but I asked him, what would you tell a first-time producer if you were to give advice, you know, what would your, would your, your best advice? And he basically said, you hire a no-name cast, you have a strong horror type or a wide, wide appeal concept film, and you hire the best director of photography and production manager you can get for the money, pull them off a big movie, because they're going to bring your movie in on time, so you're not going to lose your money. And then you just go with the best talent you can find. Don't pay for the talent in name, pay for the pay for the talent in talent. And then your story will, you know, because the story, the star is the is the genre, right? You don't need to have a star in a horror film. You need to have the horror film be the star and people want to see, you know, and discover new people. That's very true. And I think that's probably why there's so many to this day still like more independent horror movies than any other type of genre out there when they're indie up and coming films, you know, because it's just the kind of thing you can make on a budget, but you can also just really make it look really wonderful. And same thing with Leprechaun too, rewatching it. I'm like really looking at the cinematography, the lighting choices they made. Uh, you mentioned like the set design. I- I'm, you know, I'm looking back at it 20 years later, more than 20 years later. I'm like, wow, this is really good. <laughs> this shouldn't and be we shot good, that at 35. Remember, we shot that at 35 millimeter, right? Yeah. And that's a whole different lighting setup. It's it's another drain on production on time and effort and money. And you can always get, you know, check in the gate. You hear that check in the gate. There could be a hair in the gate. And when you do and you, oh, my God, we don't have we don't have a clean gate. We got to reshoot it. That kind of stuff was what we dealt with back in film era. And then when you get into the digital era, well, now you've got a lot more uh, freedom to, you know, to set lighting and then create things because you're not worrying about cost of film. Just shoot it. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's a big difference in that technology standpoint. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay, to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces, like 10 forward from the Enterprise-D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch-enemy of Worf, barrels. 
All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hey, I'm Licia Nav, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now, Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row, and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein, and a way to clean themselves, especially during corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. And we do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lower Decks or Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, well, Ken, let us beam into our Star Trek discussion finally here. And uh, we are talking now about the season <laughs> seven episode, Bloodlines. And uh, you were Jason Vigo, who was the maybe son of Picard. Maybe, maybe not. No spoilers here. Uh, maybe spoilers later. We'll get to them. Um, but yeah, we're talking now Star Trek finally. So, oh, oh look at that. <laughs> you actually have your little action figure. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I threw you off, didn't I? <laughs> uh, I was going to ask about the action figure because I got that. Um, I got that toy too. But uh, yeah, <laughs> had, I'm curious. Had you ever actually auditioned for Star Trek previously? Uh, I had not a, a audition for the show. Um, I did after for different types of or um, offshoots of, the sh- of that uh, producing company. Uh, you know, I forgot what they were, but um, I know I, I knew the director Les Landau was a friend of mine. He, he'd worked on a series of me prior on something i can't remember what maybe it was uh riptide or something and um he uh, he brought me in and uh i so i didn't really have to you know i pretty much was offered the role when you get to a certain point in in, in that time in in business when there was only three television stations for or four with fox you got on a list you know and there's about six of us or seven of us on the list tony was one of them i was one uh rob youngblood um, you know, see Tommy Howell and these kind of guys, just you're on the list, right? And uh, you get the offers and you go for it. This was like really, really cool because I'm like, oh my God, this, uh, to be on a Star Trek, that's like to check that, to tick that box, that's huge for me. It's really big. And, and um, so one thing I noticed about being on this set when I showed up was how beautiful the sets were. 
I mean, real wood, not not phony stuff. This gorgeous mahogany, the you know these these the the carpentry guys and the, and the set designers really love their sets. And you just when you're just there, you feel you're on this um, magical, you know, high quality. Everything's really quality and real. It isn't just you know wheel it around and it's a strange you know shape on the back. It's really amazing stuff. One thing I found really interesting too is our. Uh, all of our, our uniforms had to be fitting a kind of a conformity, you know? So we had to have, no one could have really big pec muscles or big shoulders. They had to make sure that if you're, you're around people, they even all of us up for the most part. Right. Oh. And, uh, and the girls too, some of the girls had to have the padded bras because some actresses on the show were larger and they can't strap that down. So they ended up, you know, giving people a little bit more of a balance along those lines. I thought that was interesting attention to detail of not letting anybody be so out there, you know, in terms of their appearance. Um, except unless they're like, you know, Matt, you know, like what's his name? White, the, the giant. Michael Dorn. Talk about war. Michael, well, Michael Dorn's one of them. There's another guy who was a pro wrestler who was like uh, white, Sam white. Is it? No. You're talking about Paul white, Paul white, Paul white. Yeah. Yep, just having the show a few, a few weeks ago, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the same idea, you know, you, that you can't hide. The guys are not he's like, he just had to be spray painted green. He had a little bit of a different kind of problem to deal with. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't have that at all. I, the, the, I'm to be honest with you, I've known as lucky Ken, truly. And this was one of those lucky, lucky moments. I get to beam up onto the ship and from splunking the cave. Right. And then I get to be kind of a comical moment of, you know that bit of uh, lightheartedness of oh my god what, the, what what is this where am I? And then it had drama. I got to do you know with my long lost sort of father <laughs> Jean Luc. That scene that we shot. Well, we saw we shot a lot of scenes together, and um, he is boy he's Royal Academy. Yeah, you know, I gotta ask you about that too. Like, were you at all intimidated yeah. to work with that? Because you know at this point you are a fairly seasoned veteran actor, but I mean it's Patrick Stewart. It's still pretty intimidating, isn't it? The beauty of Patrick, as I was not at all intimidated, what I felt was totally supported. He was right there with you know. There was no judgment. There was nothing. There was no nothing. It was beautiful. Being with him was really enjoyable, and you just felt in your moment. You're in your. You're in charge of your character. And you're relating, you know, it's that it's that ease in relating, you know, we, that, that, that you can find in that scene. We're sitting together on the cliff. It's just that, you know, it is natural. And, he, and, you, and you, I don't know how to describe it other than the genuine quality that he brought in that moment with what with us, those two characters are about, you know, feeling each other out as are you my father and are you my son and and all this nervousness and and trying to you know bond and connect that we didn't know at that point if we were related that scene is shot from the from like um the stage is in is on where we were is like ground level maybe 10 feet up and then below is where they've dug out like as you get underground parking and they built this slope of a cliff and so the camera's way down shooting way up it looks like we are right up there in the, in the mountains on a cliff and we're only about you know eight nine feet off the ground, but it was really bad. It was pretty spectacular, and uh, uh, it's pretty cool to be part of something like that. Now I'm a toy. I got a, a little yeah. character that's you know Jason Vigo. <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, I love a lot of the scenes you got to do with Patrick Stewart because it's really kind of watching the journey of how you two are, are trying to form a relationship. And I think um, really upon the first viewing of of the scene, this, I, I feel like, you know, maybe the first time I see it, it was almost so awkward in the beginning because you guys are trying to feel each other out. But then you get to that moment, as you just mentioned, where now it's like you guys finally have that connection. So I think there's a lot of real subtle, nuanced acting uh, as you guys kind of build this relationship through the course of the episode here. Uh, but, you know, I'm kind of wondering, you know, and this kind of brings me back to how you talked about the encounters that you did, you know, when you were kind of coming up and looking towards acting as being the next thing you wanted to do. Uh, when you're doing these scenes with Picard, and especially that one where you're sitting on the, you know, the quote unquote mountaintop there, uh, were, was that at any point, like, did it become too real for you at any point? Did it come like, maybe closer to home than you want it to be? Did you like channel something from within you for that? Or how did you approach that? Yeah, so... so um I get. I think from the background of the encounter groups and the, and, the, and the, the times with people who were really opening up their hearts with me, and I was with them. You use sometimes yourself as uh, you, you allow them to use you. So that so if you have an issue with your mother or your father, then I would provide that space for you. You look in my eyes, and pretty soon you only see their eyes and my eyes, and then that emotion and everything is reconnecting for you, and it's becoming more and more of a release and clarity and all that kind of thing. That's an, the kind of quality I found. With Patrick was sitting with him. We both came at that from that same position. And all I had to do was look in his eyes and see this. And you fall into the character of this guy's, you know, he abandoned my mother. And he, you know, and now he's, you know, she's dead now. She's gone because of, you know, and I, and now I'm on my own and you're running this, this fleet commander. I mean, and, and there was that opportunity just to feel that. And, and he provided a really good re- of guilt and, and remorse. And he, at the same time, he still knows he's not really convinced yet. He doesn't, you know, because we, we didn't know at that point. We thought so. We thought so. And it was getting more and more. But then Bach got nailed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also, so being on, also, I got to say, Matt, being on this set, Data, everybody you know now i'm starstruck now i'm with you know now you're walking through wonderland and you're seeing all these guys that like i never like i'd see a lot of actors doing celebrity charity stuff like tennis and whatever hockey but some of these guys didn't see and but they're they're up there they're main 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 characters in this kind of series and it was really fun to be around them I've, I've never heard anybody has have anything bad to say about hanging out with Brent Spiner, but I don't, I don't think you got to do any scenes with him, but you did get to have a scene with Marina Sirtis. And uh, I'd like to hear how that went. Cause that's okay. Okay. Yeah. We're, for folks who are listening to the audio version, we just got a pretty big uh, eyebrow shrug there. Uh, <laughs> oh my. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, there's a limit to what uh, the Roddenberry group or whatever they are that, you know, they, they want to, in terms of sexuality, you got to, got to watch it here. It's a family show. And she is so sexy and so hot. And sitting with her, my character gets to come on to her like that. And she, yeah, exactly. She was, um, you know, it's, it's fun. That's the wonderful part about our jobs is you, you get to do it. You get to fall into that into that scenario or that scene, that moment in time, and and kind of really, you know, explore and play with it and and see and have fun with it up to obviously up to a point but it's it's uh it's fun when you're doing that with somebody else who's who's with you on that you know it can be miserable if the other actor it you know is just turned off by you and what your choices are or if i'm doing something inappropriate that's that's miserable not that i've ever done that i'm just saying you know (laughs) good cover good cover i'm just saying you know it's it's a that it's a tightrope and when you do cross over and it's it's and you feel that trust with each other and, and acceptance and you can go into it more it's really fun she's so sexy 
So beautiful. It hasn't changed. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I just yeah. think it's so fun to, like, looking at the episode and looking at Jason Vigo. It's like, here is this character, and here's this actor who's, like, uber cool, the personification of cool. And basically, every scene you have to do, you are basically, like, super awkward because you don't really fit into this world. And you're trying to find your way with Picard. You're trying to mack on your counselor at the same time. I mean, it's like he's just super awkward, despite at the same time being so damn cool. That's that's gotta be a lot of fun. I also to play feel like awkward in my outfit too because it was a little tight and I was getting yeah, was it? yeah. I was like, you know, how you get a little self conscious and you're sitting in a slouch. You're like, I'm quite gonna have a roll here. Going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's this this pretty a pretty snug outfit. Yeah, um, it's uber cool. <laughs> i tell you what is uber cool though was over the time we've gotten to work like for example gunsmoke you know the remake to be with james arnass and amanda blake that i also grew up watching that like william shatner so having you know those opportunities to be you know with people of that elk you know um is just it's really you know it's all you could ever ask for truly to say i've been able to work with these people i grew up watching they were big stars and made big, big impacts. So, yeah, now Ken, I was trying to find like a good way to fit this in. And I guess since we're talking about outfits, maybe this is the, the segue to make it less creepy sounding, but you know, looking back on your career, I really got to kind of watch you transform your body. And we're talking about, you know, a lot of the roles you had where you're either in a really small tight tank top or you're a stripper who's running around naked with no pants on, right. uh, or, you know, you know, now at this point too, it's about 93 when you did Star Trek, probably 93, 94, ever it was, and not far off from Leprechaun, you were pretty big at that point too. I mean, you, you were, you're pretty buff at that point. So uh, I would love to know what was your workout routine to where you are, you know, to when you got to, I guess, let's call it peak mass, if you will, at this point in your life. <laughs> peak mass. Like, well, um, boy. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I, I, summer school got it rolling first. My actually, but the funny thing is, my wife was it was a dancer, and then a personal became a personal trainer later in life. And we're a very athletic family. All the all the kids are athletes. But with from that standpoint in time in the career, uh, kind of really stood stayed. I should have stayed with it more. But I was playing a lot of ice hockey. And I, and I wouldn't eat after six o'clock, five thirty-six. I'd heard from that Stallone said that was a good thing for Rocky. He didn't eat after a certain time, then took arginine, you know, amino acids basically to keep his, his metabolism going. And so if you speed up your metabolism and you eat healthy, stay away from the obvious things like alcohol and carbs that are, are going to just like show up. Um, then it's pretty much easy to maintain, you know, and grow along those lines. But I got lazy at times too. You know, the, the older you get, you get kids and you get a dad role and you get, you get uh, the, the stresses of family and, and all these things start to mount up and the glorious acting career starts to change into something where, you know, you're, you're uh, holding on to that as long as within reason, because, you know, you, you age out in these, in these, um, in this profession, you can age right out of, of one category and you can reemerge later in something completely different. Dean Cameron's doing a great job at that, right? He aged out as the goofy, you know, surfer, snowboarding guy with crazy, very good guitars, by the way. Dear friend, dear friend for many, many years. Now he looks like Santa Claus, you know, he's not his hair, his beard, and he's, he, but he would play the judge. He would play the anything that's in another world, completely different, and he has a very pleasing look and a very good style about him. So that kind of stuff, this, but there's a gap in time, you know, you, you and sometimes you, if you have to really keep it go, as long as you can. And then after a while, you know, you, I just don't play the 19 year old anymore. I don't play the 21 and I'm not that 31 year old guy. 
I'm, where am I? I'm in this range. And that's where you start to like find every actor thinks their last job is their last job. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure for Ken Olant, the, uh, the, the dad bod is like just a six pack instead of a 12 pack. So I wouldn't be too worried about that. <laughs> uh, my wife would disagree, but then again, she's like, you know, the hard ass, you know, she's, she's, she's really, you know, she's an Olympic trainer. So it's, ah. yeah. No, I think um, hockey, good, having the hockey, the hockey background was really helpful. And, uh, that was good core strengthening. I loved playing. I was playing two, three times a week. Just stay active. We also had horses at one point. Around, around about the time of Super Force, we had bought some land in a place outside of L.A. and uh, had horses. And that's anything outdoor work. If you're, uh, For example, on Leprechaun, when I would go to shoot each day shooting, I would sink a pole in my land. So I dig a hole and then go to leprechaun. And so that was my routine was, was digging a hole, you know, like exercise in the morning or in the evening. And then I knew I'd set a pole, you know, each day, pour, you know, head the concrete, whatever, just in the rocks. And that was, I think that kind of activity, outdoor activity keeps you pretty fit. So that's the secret of the leprechaun bod right there. <laughs> no, I had weights on set. I always, you know, like everybody does. Don't, don't let them fool you. You're Gotta always pump on. This- you always get before you're gonna go before camera. You do your curls, your fetches, your push-ups, your dips. You got to get all that upper body pumped. Yes, no question. If they don't, if they're lying if they say they didn't, and they're idiots if they didn't. So yeah. that's you know. I did a set before I came on this interview, but uh, you, I can yeah. see. Yeah, I can totally. See. You are such a good liar. You are a wonderful actor. Uh, now you know. Looking back, doing this bloodlines episode, so we got to get back to Star Trek at some point here. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. looking back at this episode here, did you actually watch it when it first aired? Oh yeah, that's that's the fun of, of that's the real fun of being an actor is you know especially back in the day because it would come on and then it would rerun later next like in the summer. I think we were in that world too. Uh, yeah, you when it comes on, everyone's gathered around your friends, or your family, your agent, all that stuff. When you come on and you watch it, it's kind of like theater in that regard. You're watching the, your own show; it's your show, and you're like, "Yeah, good job! Yeah, it was exciting. That's fun." You let everyone know you're gonna, your show's going to be on. Remember the old TV guides? Yeah. <laughs> yep. We would have our names. Yeah, you get those things out, and you would highlight them and go, okay, TV guide, some do an article on you. For those who don't know, TV guide was this before the internet. It was a magazine that we printed in all these supermarkets, and it had the, t- the full TV schedules of all the networks. And so they, this was basically, you know, the – the rundown of whatever's going to be on television. That's the only way you'd find it or you'd watch a promo on the show, on the series or the, on, the, on the station. That's the only way of ever knowing what's going to be on television. Imagine that Yeah. today. It's like, you can know in 10, 10 seconds. I find out. Yeah. I don't know when the last time is that you've actually watched the episode. I know most actors don't sit there rewatching their old episodes, things like that. But, uh, you know, I'm curious, you know, if you, when the last time is that you've seen it and, uh, you know, even if you haven't seen it in a while, just thinking about it, uh, and, you know, considering what you know today about acting and what your abilities are today, is there anything that you think you would have changed about your performance back then? Anything you would have done differently? Looking back, to be honest with you, and I'm being really, really not only to sound cocky or, or conceited at all, because I'm just, I looked at it and I thought that was really a good performance. I really felt good about it all. And I actually saw a bit of it recently when someone, it would come on and they videotaped it and then they posted it on a, on a, um, a group chat or whatever it was that we're in our family and lots of kids, lots of friends and so forth. And I watched that piece of it. And, um, no, I, no, I, I have no, there's always moments in times you wish you, you know, but that's the pitfall of every actor. And 
and you can't ever ever you know make it's over with but if you look at the overall body of the of the scenes now i'm quite happy with it quite happy it's a very good episode. Yeah, it's some really great work by you with all the folks you got to work with. Uh, yeah, real good. Good. I feel like it's you know one of those ones that people don't talk about quite as much, but it's worth rewatching. So if anybody out there who's listening to this right now hasn't seen it in a while, definitely go back and do it because I don't know why you're not. Uh, but <laughs> so this was again the final season of Star Trek TNG, but there was still DS9, there was Voyager, Enterprise, and whatever else uh, that came on after that. But uh, did you ever get any callbacks, or did you ever audition for any of the roles on other Star Trek shows? So. Okay, so what year was the uh, Bloodlines, the actual year? 80, yep. That would have been 93 or 94, I think. 93. Right, okay, so 93, um, that was the third to last episode of the season. And um, I did, I think I auditioned for, a, uh, not a Deep Space Nine, but another one of these, um, Voyager, I think it was Voyager. I was, I was auditioning for a role in Voyager. And that was right around the time I was starting to age out of the business. In, in um, I think I did at that point. The next things I do was a, a movie called Power Play, which is a hockey movie, and then I did Digital Man, and that's an independent, you know, sci-fi movie. That as that happened, I moved into producing. So that was the that was the bridge from from Star Trek. You know, those last shows there, a few episodes of things. Here they're like a jag episode or something like that, but really the from that night in ninety three ninety five we formed UFO, and and that was so just a couple of years after this, right? And just so folks know too, UFO is a unified film organization, and that was you. And uh, was there anybody else along with you that was doing that company? Well, there's Phil Roth was his, was his name, and he is his name. <laughs> He's still alive. Also, he uh, that company is now uh, Bavarian Unified Film or. Oh, Bulgaria, Bulgarian. It's it's moved to Bulgaria. They shoot everything out of Bulgaria and run the company from Bulgaria. Basically, an offshoot. It's no longer a unified film organization that was wound down. We were actually purchased by a company that was a public company. Uh, it was our our distribution partner in in uh, Germany. And the way that works is you have different territories. You buy your movies, and they buy in bulk. You buy what if you have three or four movies, then they give you contract for all of them, and and that's your sale for that territory that one German company went public and they ended up buying UFO at that point in time. I, I produced about uh, somewhere around 12 movies or 15 movies. And um, it was really fun. We were the first to do desktop level animation to go out to a 35 millimeter film. So what that means is everyone's still shooting in 35 millimeter. We would, uh, sh- we would shoot our green screen and then we would film have a film scanner and take that footage into the computer our animators will be building around that footage and then they we composite it back through after effects and the time and put that into the uh, burn a new negative and put that a new a new film and put that in negative nine reels it was what you have to deliver for a feature film it's a lot of it's a lot of, <laughs> right it's a lot of, not just a little cassette it's nine reels of film and we were doing three of those a year and it was you can imagine how much work is involved making you know, an action picture with 10 minute battle scene of spaceships, warring it out in space with top level animation to the point where we were hiring these guys and we had 15 animators, three edit bays. It was a real studio, mini studio. And we talked with new tech who makes the, they were the uh, makers of lightweight, which was the time, the best software for jet animation. Then Maya came along. And so that's, I left acting, if you would, just basically devote all into the production side, which was I was doing finance. I was doing, uh, you know, executive producing, acting in some of the movies, this and that. But 
really, and casting doesn't really want to hear from you once you're the producer, because now you're the enemy, <laughs> you know? They, yeah, you know too much when you're the producer. When you're an actor, you're kind of like their little toy, and they get to, oh, he's so wonderful. He's going to discover you, but now you're the hiring guy. And you're looking, it's a different dynamic. Um, so, and then, you know, I wasn't going to Bulgaria because I got all these kids and I like the family life. Um, so that was really where my life sort of made a turn out of the entertainment industry. Um, and I exited basically from that standpoint of being a producer, just moved into finance altogether. And then down the road, um, uh, a buddy that I play hockey with was a partner in a company called Eagle Rider. And he introduced me to the idea of being a tour guide. And I said, that sounds like a tequila talking bop. And he says, no, it's check it out. It's fun. And you think you, your time in life, you probably enjoy it. And I did. And I got into it. So now I'm partner in a company called Explorify. And we do, I'm, my job is to run the tours, motorcycle guided and self-guided uh, tours. We go across the country over 15 days on Harleys and all over the world, actually, too. That's very yeah. cool. I mean, how has COVID affected your business? I'm really curious about that now because, you know, this is now a bike tour. It's kind of a personal thing. You're riding with a bunch of people. Uh, were, were you able to keep doing tours while COVID was happening? At its No, no. COVID, COVID changed everything as it did for everyone else. And we were really smart. You know, we, the leadership in this kind of company turned uh, the corner fast and sold and unloaded all of our motorcycles. So we didn't sit on any stock, you know, and worry about that and downsize quickly so we could wait for this thing to evolve and then uh as it's come back it, it was it was actually in las vegas at, a, at a, a convention called the ipw and this is where all the travel agents come and uh, booking agents and literally the morning of the of the day that it opened they made an announcement that um november 8th biden said the country's going to open up suddenly everyone's phones are ringing and they're getting emails and now they're coming over and they're talking about booking and you know doing business so it was exciting and, and now it's been just really growing fast so um, i'm so busy with you know i'm leading some tours and going to travel around the world you know england uh, trade shows i'm going to canada next weekend <laughs> i know we, we've like teased this for the entire duration of the interview now we just talked about some of your work you know with ufo but uh, we've mentioned William Shatner's name a few times now, and you had said you'd done some stuff with him. So we got to talk about the Shatner. Well, just prior to working with Bill, I'd worked with his daughter, Melanie, in a Western, like a few years, quite a few years prior. So that was that was my one separation, one of your separation from Bill. And then um, this movie was called Falcon Down. And we had Judd Nelson and William Shatner and a, a football kicker named Dean Busucci. He used to kick for the Colts. He was a friend of mine too. Um, but, but Bill was super gracious and really fun. I mean, he has a great sense of humor and he has that smile that is like a Chester cat grin, you know, <laughs> and he, he just is, but he's Canadian. So he and I really bonded on that level. We understand each other. I'm not Canadian, but I, I know and spent, much of my life and my best friends in high school all back in Vancouver and Bill and I had a real a good a real good relationship um he he's just a really good guy he was a lot of fun on the set he was a prankster you know but he's very professional and he it's like him I like Martin Sheen the you I've had him on Storm man wow it's just they set a tone just showing up they set a tone you know was particularly with, with Bill because Bill everybody knows Bill from star trek and that's like you know 
it's as it's as as as, as American as normal as, as cornflakes. You know, everyone knows this show. Sh- uh, Marty was more like some of the hardcore movies. You know, Platoon or, or you know, was it Apocalypse uh, Now? Apocalypse Now, right? And and other things. So he, he was more of the drama side. Bill was really just that that guy you looked at. And you go, "There's only one of you, man. There's only one of you." <laughs> There's no like a there's, you can never find a William Shatner like person. It just aren't. There's nothing out there. Now we also saw this a little bit earlier in the, in the interview, and I think it's time we bring it back out. Now your Star Trek action figure, the Jason Vigo action figure. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, I mean you got you got a little tiny one though. Is difference here? So what do you think about your little dude? <laughs> so what's wrong with my masculinity? I'm very comfortable in that. Uh, yeah, no, I I just I think I'm just thrilled that I have it. You know, I, that, that, that they did make, they made one that I got to keep for posterity. Um, it's really cool. And my son uh, bought it off uh, eBay. He found it and sent it to me. So that's why it's a little banged up. It's a, I think some kid had gotten a hold of it and tossed it around. Didn't, you know, didn't like it for Christmas or something, <laughs> but that's too little. <laughs> it's uh, it's cool. Isn't it? Have, to have your own little, little action figure immortalized, if you will. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I can tell you, too, a little fun fact here, because I actually collect uh, the Playmates, mostly the Playmates, uh, the Star Trek figure prototypes. So uh, I can tell you that actually somewhere out there exists a full-sized figure of what you had in that pack really? right there. Yeah, so I, I found wow. this out because I actually got one. I, I got, um, it was a figure of uh, Brunt, who never had, I know this, this name probably means nothing to you because you're not like a super hardcore nerdy Trek like me, but uh, this character named Brunt <laughs> who never got a, a full-size four-and-a-half-inch figure, but he got one in that size that you have like with that ship. And I <laughs> managed to buy... Uh, it's called a hard copy. So it's basically like when they, when they first sculpt it out of wax, they'll then usually uh, make a mold out of that and they'll use resin right. to then make a, a copy of it. And that's like the earliest version of that prototype. So it's a hard copy of that figure. And uh, so I know that's, that's basically the same way they did it with those figures. So somewhere out yeah. there is a four inch version that probably has like really amazing detail of your face in it that who knows where the hell it is now. <laughs> wow. That's if anybody listening knows where we can find this, it would be amazing. I'll give you, you know, if you're a motorcycle rider, I'll, I'll cut you a great deal. I'll give you a free motorcycle ride or rental. Yeah, no, that would be awesome. It really would be awesome to find that. If that if, how would you know? How would you ever find that? The model makers would know from the no, from these no, toys? It's, uh, there's like a whole sub community of folks who just buy prototypes and things like that out there. So uh, a lot of digging. Wow. You never know where these things pop up. Uh, I mean, I've gotten stuff from all sorts of different people. Uh, it's almost like a black market out there for this kind of thing. So we'll, we'll ask around. <laughs> we'll, we'll try and find the Jason Vigo out there. It's got to be there somewhere. It's got to be one, Matt. That's, that's so wonderful. If we, could, if we could find that, I'd love to have that just for posterity. You know, I, my kids got a chance to see my older daughters got a chance to see me at, uh, at a screening we did for April Fool's Day and they'd never seen that movie. Weirdness, right? They'd never seen it. Here we are at a screening and we're just a small one for the director, a few of the actors and it's on 35 millimeter in Hollywood. It was really, really special. So it's fun for them to go, well, my God, dad, you know, <laughs> they had no idea of the, of the work that I did prior really. I didn't, we didn't show a lot of my stuff around, you know, I don't know why it's just, it's weird, isn't it? You, you leave the, there's plenty of places they can watch. Now we got Amazon, we got Netflix. They can find your stuff. The, the Ken Olin film festival is coming out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Ken, as we come towards the end of this interview here, uh, I'd love to know, just looking back in your career as a whole, what was the best day you ever had in a set? And what was the worst day you ever had in a set? Oh man, you hit me with that one out of the blue. The best day that I ever had on a set. 
I guess the best days I think I've had was was the scenes I did uh, on Star Trek. I, those are the, those just because of what, the beautiful sets, the fantasy of it all. The crew was so friendly, and they all knew each other so well. And Patrick was is like you know, he's an icon. Gunsmoke, the remake that was a big one, high, a Highway to Heaven with Mar- Mar- um, Michael Landon. Big time, you know, working on those sets with with those guys, Carl Reiner. It's really hard to say what's the best one. What's the worst one? The worst time I had on the set was when I was shooting April Fool's Day, and I had to just swim in the water after I run out of the boathouse, and I'm supposed to swim and then call back. I can't make it. Tide's too strong, and this is in like October in Vancouver in the ocean, and I'm in a speedo. And I was, I almost got hypothermia coming back. So that was about the worst time I've ever had on a set, but it's really tough. I'd say Star Trek and Gunsmoke, Highway to Heaven and Summer School are because of who I'm working with really are up there. Good answer. Good answer. Yeah, I'll take that. Uh, So most valuable piece of advice that anybody has ever given you about either life or acting or maybe even both. So the most important piece of information I ever got was from Sylvester Stallone. And I ran into him when I was reading for the Revenge of the Nerds movie. I was running down. I just remember this all so well. I was running down the aisleway in between these areas of these offices with this bullpen of all these you know, cubicles and so forth. And, and Sly was standing at this, you know, with his back out. To him. And I'm running down the hallway. How, and I see him. And I stop. And this is at that gregarious, cocky time in my life when I went, hey, man you should write a book about your whole Rocky experience and all that stuff. And he looked at me and he's like, that sly grin, he goes, hey, you know, there are no rules. There are no rules. And I went, yeah, but what you did, what you did, you know, would really inspire people and let to know from your perspective and your ideas. I think that was what I tried to say. He turned around and he said to me, I smile and he put his hand on my shoulder. He goes, strength and charm. Never forget that. Strength and charm the way I saw that, and I and repeat, like, strengthen that you were confident with yourself and being who you are, and, and and be your own best friend. Charm and love people, like, and love just love them with they're like children with their toys when they're talking about their project. Enjoy it with them on that level of charm and genuine. And I lived by that when I would meet people in the, in this because I felt good about me going in, and I felt good about them. I made sure of it. So that was great advice from from Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, definitely. And I can tell it's, it's been very actionable because, I mean, even just talking today for the first time ever, I mean, I can definitely feel that that strength and charm coming from you. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you're definitely living that quote. So that's that's great. So uh, last thing for today, Ken, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? The best thing about being a part of the, of the Star Trek universe is that you're part of a very unique group of and a large one. But you're of a fraternity, if you will, sorority, fraternity, uh, just a family, a body of, of actors. And the beauty of this gives you your own place in the sun to stand. So there's no other, for me, fortunately, you know, I have star, I have Jason and that's a big part of that link of everything. And one of the greatest things I've got experience I got for that was doing the cheat, the, uh, ch- um, what's that chiller chiller show and a fella came up to me and he had a poster he heard i was there and he says i've got everybody's signature on this but yours so i said listen it's going to cost you a lot of money no i said i'd be happy to i was just thrilled that you know i could 
make this guy's day by giving him the last signature he needed to have this, you know, Star Trek poster filled with all the people that were on the show that he could get a hold of, you know, pretty cool. So that's, I find, I find that very few opportunities you get that ability to interact with people. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, have you ever yeah. done any Star Trek conventions? I've never done one. I'd love to do one. I got to fix that. Many. Huh? We got to fix that. I talked to so many guests yeah. in the show and they say that they do all these other things. They've done chiller, but never a Star Trek con. We got to get Ken Olant at uh, Star Trek mission or something like that. They probably thought I was MIA. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I just, it would love to do it. It's just fun. And they're there. Particularly this one would be special. You know, when you do a chiller and you have a movie, they're, they're different. They're separated. When you're doing a Star Trek convention, you're in the team. You're on the team. You're in the family. Yeah. It's kind of neat. Yeah, we got to make that happen out there. So, folks, campaign to the folks over at Star Trek Mission. Uh, let's get that to happen. Let's get Ken on to a proper Star Trek <laughs> convention. Finally, please. Uh, and Ken, just one last time to you today. Uh, can you let our folks know at home uh, what the website is for the motorcycle tour company? It's called Explorify. And Explorify Motorcycle Rentals and Tours. And it's really amazing experience. or bucket list kinds of things that, that you do if you're a motorcycle rider and you want to see the country and meet new people from all over the world riding you know new new motorcycles not not only harleys but all different kinds of models but it is an amazing amazing two weeks you'll spend seeing peak having peak moments in amazing places with new new friends just amazing that sounds very glorified yes all right so everybody check that out we're gonna have links for it uh place you can check it out in the show notes so make sure you go ahead and look that up uh ken thank you so much for chatting today giving us so much of your time so much of your great stories uh strength and charm that that definitely sums up ken a lot so uh, thank you so much for chatting today really appreciate it it's been awesome thanks matt it's been my pleasure really that's it for this week's episode of trek untold and thank you for checking it out one more time if you're not following us on social media please do so by checking us out on twitter Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And that's all one word, no spaces on any of those platforms. If you want to check out the video version of this podcast to see our guests, head over to youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday, where I post the video version of this show every Sunday after the initial episode airs on Thursdays. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing. If you're in a position to financially support Trek Untold, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash trekuntold to become one of our Patreon supporters. There's a lot of cool perks that you can get by becoming a Patreon supporter, including early access to the episodes, the ability to ask our guests questions, and a lot more cool stuff coming very soon. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes or any other audio platforms that you listen to the show on that allow you to do so. Or if you're one of our YouTube audience members, please make sure you comment on this video and give it a thumbs up and don't forget to subscribe to our channel. Special thanks to Scott Ray for providing us with this week's guest. If you'd like to book them for an autograph signing or convention appearance, email Scott at scottray67 at aol.com. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.